about five years ago, I think it was. Um, I, I think I was at one of the first gatherings of Grace Fellowship. We were at somebody's house in Homewood. I can't remember who. And it was kind of the first worship service. And the difference was I had a guitar in front of me. Um, tonight, I don't. It's kind of like my safety blanket when I'm here, and now I don't have it. So um, if you'll bear with me, I'm sure I'll be fine. But um, I'm just really grateful for you. And if there's one thing that can be said about Grace Fellowship and its existence up to this point is that God has been extremely faithful. And he will be. He's promised that. So, yeah, thanks. And I'm humbled to open the word uh, with y'all tonight. So with that, will you turn to Psalm 34? Psalm 34. We're going to start with the description that it has up there and, and go all the way through verse 22. Hear these words of God. Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can come to you tonight through and by your spirit, through the work of your son, that we can approach you as sons and daughters, that you hear us, that you delight to to bring us your salvation. So tonight, as we hear these words, that I've prepared, I pray that you would um, open our hearts. I pray that your spirit would work and that you'd speak 
to souls that need to hear from you and that they need to see Jesus. And so we pray that. We pray that we would see Jesus tonight. And we pray all this in his matchless name. Amen. So what do you do when hard things happen in life? Where do you kind of instinctually turn when trouble comes? What's your, what's your instinct? What's your natural response when affliction lands at your door? So as, for as many of us that are in this room, there's probably a unique answer to those questions. And I don't know what yours are, but I'm aware, because I've lived in this body for 33, almost 33 years, I'm aware of some of my own when things happen. So in my junior and senior years of college, I started to experience uh, what was my first kind of bout with anxiety leading into um, some seasons of depression. And when it first happened, I couldn't really escape the onslaught of it. It was like a wave after wave of anxiety and, and sadness and, and affliction. And my response, by and large, was to do everything I could in my power to kind of get it under control. So I, I got on the message boards uh, and, and looked at different sufferers and what they were going through, how they were getting through it. I started uh, running and exercising constantly. I started taking medication. I started journaling. I started hanging out with friends, etc., etc., etc. Now, all of those things were really, really good, and they really helped. And if you're going through something similar tonight, I'm really sorry for that, and, and I would encourage them. But there was one thing that was really not instinctual for me. There was one thing that was not that natural, but it actually was the thing that was most needful for me in that moment. And that's a thing I think that David just commended to us in the psalm that we just heard. Because in this psalm, if you kind of hear nothing else tonight, this psalm, I think, tells us that in times of affliction and whatever that looks like, sorrow, sadness, grief, whatever, our instinct as Christians is to plea and petition our good God who is eager to deliver us. In times of affliction, our instinct as Christians is to plea and petition our good God who is eager to deliver us, which results in his praise and glory and honor. So here's how we're going to look at it briefly this evening. We're going to look at three moves in this passage. We're going to look at two kind of reminders for our hearts, and then just hear one announcement that we need to hear every time we come through these doors, okay? So first, a few notes on the psalm that we just uh, read. It's really kind of an interesting and intentional song. So it's interesting because of the setting. You know, those setting, that setting we just read isn't just something added, something that's not read. It actually was the first verse of the psalm in the Hebrew kind of way of, of, of thinking of it. And what does it say? It's an odd one. It says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So there's this scene in 1 Samuel 21 where pre-King David is on the run from Saul. And so he decides to go into the land of the Philistines. And, and that, that wasn't necessary, uh, necessarily like David's kind of greatest move, right? Because uh, the Philistines weren't super big fans of David, right? After he had kind of lopped off the head of their favorite warrior giant. Um, so they weren't really happy to see him. The king wasn't really happy to see him. And so David is in a tough spot. He's being chased by Saul, and he's in a land of enemies, 
He's enduring affliction. And what does he do? Well, he absolutely goes insane. The text in Samuel says that David started frothing at the mouth, drooling. You can imagine him kind of mumbling. One of my vices is biting my nails, so I use my imagination, and I just imagine David sitting there biting his nails. And the king of the Philistines is like, you know what, I have too many people like this in my kingdom, I don't need one more. And he sends him out, and like, voila, out comes this psalm. Pretty interesting, kind of weird. The other thing about this psalm is that it's really intentional. David spent a lot of thought and reflection and kind of soul searching and produced this language. How do we know this especially about Psalm 34? Well, it's an acrostic psalm. What does that mean? It means that every line, every verse starts with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet, say one line. So all those 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, David is starting with one and going all the way to the end. So it's structured, intentional poetry. There's deliberate thought put into this passage. And in it, we see three movements. I want to briefly talk about those and then get to what it means for our hearts. So what are they? Look at verses 1 to 3. David starts with invitation. We get a sense of what this psalm is about from the get-go by looking at what David is doing in his choice of verbs. Look at them. He says, bless. He says, praise. He says, boast. He says, magnify. He says, exalt. You can sense David's kind of resolve that the ongoing refrain of his life is going to be one of joyful praise and adoration for what God has done. But David doesn't leave it there. He then invites you and me, anyone who reads this psalm, to join him in magnifying and exalting God. See, one of the great blessings of the Christian life is that every Sunday you actually get invited by the Spirit to come here and worship. You are invited to come and experience life in its fullness by worshiping God because the worship of God is actually where life is found. And there's actually seasons of my life, especially as a pastor, if, if I'm going to be honest, where I kind of take that for granted. And you may be in here tonight, and you might be taking it for granted. And I think David would want us to, to hear the worship of God, the praise of God with his people is one of the most absolutely essential, vital elements of your Christian life. And so he invites us to praise God with him. But the invitation doesn't stand on its own. David has reasons for inviting us. That gets into verses 4 to 7. The second move is David's own experience of God's deliverance. So one of the most powerful things in the Christian life is testimony. When one Christian shares with other Christians how Christ in some way has brought about a big-ass salvation when he first called them to faith, or little salvations throughout their life, how God has provided for them in certain ways. That's something we're called to do regularly, and that's what David does here. So I grew up in Springfield, Missouri, um, the kind of a production capital of the world. And, um, well, it's not really a production capital of the world. I don't really know why I said that. Uh, There's a lot of production that happens in Springfield. But I went to a um, little charismatic church in um, my teenage years. So from 14 to 18, I was part of this 100-person charismatic church. Um, 
that was uh, met in the VFW Hall, Veterans of Foreign Wars, and we set up chairs every, every week, and we had a three-hour worship service. Got there at 2, left around 5, ate dinner, we're, we're gone by 6.30. But there was a lot of times uh, in, in services where something would happen to where we were all just sitting there, and someone would take a microphone, and they'd just put it like right where I'm standing, and then you would just wait. You would wait for someone to kind of get the boldness and the courage. Like some of you are just freaking out hearing that, right? <laughs> get the boldness and the courage to come up and share in some small S or big S salvation kind of way what Christ had done for them. And if David was in that congregation, he would be getting up to the mic and he would be saying this psalm. He shares in verse 6 that he was a poor man. He was in low places, so low that in his anguish and affliction, he actually faked insanity. And he had no resources to save himself. And, it, and what, he, what he did was he sought and he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered him. And now with confidence, he can say, because he's been there in low places, that the Lord is faithful to deliver. He experienced it tangibly. But David doesn't stop with his own experience. We get into the last move of the psalm in verses 8 to 22. And he says, he starts instructing us. Verses 8 to 22, David kind of enters into this mode of the teacher of wisdom. And he starts telling us some important things about our lives following the Lord. The wisdom of the Bible is really an observational wisdom. It's not always this equals that. It's not always mechanical. But biblical wisdom will tell us, in general, what does life following Jesus Christ look like? And David tells us that it looks like a few things. He tells us first that in verse 8, that you can actually taste in your Christian life. You can actually see in your Christian life that God is good. You can taste that. You can know that deeply. In verses 9 and 10, he says, people that are under the care of God's kind of, under the care of God are not lacking in anything that's necessary for their life. In God, you have everything that is needful for your existence. Everything. Everything. In verses 11 to 14, he tells us there's actually flourishing life that can be found in obedience to God's command. By being a person of peace and of justice and of purity and of good speech, that it actually, David kind of tells us it's actually worth it because you'll see good life. You'll see flourishing life when you are committed to obedience to God's law and his ways. In verses 15 to 17, he says that God's eyes and ears are deeply attuned to those who look to him, but his face is turned away from those that want nothing to do with him. And then he finishes in verses 18 to 22 by teaching us that God, the God that we worship tonight, is intimately, closely attuned to those that are brokenhearted and to those that are crushed in spirit. See, David's instruction is telling us some wisdom about the many reasons why God is good and is deserving of the worship that he's inviting us to. That's why, in verse 1, David can say, 
I will bless the Lord at all times. So that's what he's told us. That's the, that's the moves of the psalm. Invitation, experience, instruction. But here's a fact. You actually could be sitting in here tonight. You can know the interesting setting of the psalm, right? That's a little, that's a little um, thing you could share at a party later on, right? Not that you will. You could you can know all the intention behind the psalm, how David was very structured, how he used those letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Again, if that first one at the party doesn't work, that one will work. Or will it? You could know all the moves of this psalm that we just explained. And you could be sitting here and think, that's great, but what does that have to do with me sitting in this room right now, fanning myself? What does it have to do with me? Well, I've been reflecting on this psalm for a little over a week, two weeks. When I first was told, it was in June, and I started looking at it then. And I was really reminded by the Lord of two things that comforted and encouraged me as a Christian, kind of making my way in the world. And I hope, I'm going to share them, because I hope they are encouraging and comforting for you as you make yours in the world. A phrase that I've heard a lot in my life of ministry, and mostly from your pastor, uh, is that people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. He borrowed that from somebody, but it's kind of the thing I think of when I think of Joel Busby. You need to be reminded more than you need to be instructed. So here's two reminders for our souls tonight, for your hearts. Here's the first. It's that the life of the Christian will be one of affliction. The life of the Christian will be one that experiences affliction. Now, you might be thinking, well, Clayton, I don't know if you actually know the definition of comforting and encouraging. Because that doesn't sound comforting and encouraging. And you'd be right. Right? When David and the other psalmists, um, what they describe as they're kind of charting the experiences and the emotions of the human soul before God are often experiences of trouble, of hardship, of anxiety, of affliction, of fear, of lament. And he does that here in this psalm. He identifies himself as the humble, as he kind of talks to us as. Children. He talks to us as, as if we have fears and troubles. He talks to us as if we could potentially be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. He talks to us as if we might experience a lot of afflictions. And then you get out of the country of the Psalms and you enter the land of the law and the prophets. And then you go into the world of the New Testament. You go into the time when Christ establishes his church. And what do you hear? A lot of the same. You hear Jeremiah saying things like, I'm a man who has seen affliction. And he's in conversation with Paul who says, we are hard pressed on every side. We're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're struck down. Who's talking to Peter who says, Christians will experience various trials. And you might be in here this evening and that's what you're going through. Could be that it's a loss, a loss of a loved one, 
a loss of a hope, a loss of a promising opportunity, a loss of a vision that you had for your life. Maybe you're dealing with mental anguish and anxiety and sadness and depression. Maybe you're in here and you just have this general feeling of this sense of trial and hardship from being a human. And then you add on top of that the call to take up your cross and be a Christian. And you kind of think, man, this seems pretty impossible. So where is the comfort and encouragement there, Clayton? Well, I hear your question. And I think it's, it's actually the fact that in that affliction, you're not alone. So when I was young, um, maybe to a point where I was actually older than was kind of uh, acceptable, uh, I was a little afraid of the dark, like classic, like classically afraid of the dark, did not like it. And I'm an Enneagram 6. If you know anything about Enneagram 6, uh, uh, they're kind of difficult to be around. And uh, they can kind of foresee the wrong things that are going to happen in their lives or the lives of others, and they kind of plan for that happening. So as a little kid, I must have been an Enneagram 6 from the get-go. Because when I was laying in my bed, I would think of all the situations that might happen to me while I'm sleeping. And then I would think of, well, what am I going to do if those things happen, right? That's anxiety-inducing. It started early, right? But something I did to comfort myself was two things kind of mentally. One, I would think, I am sure that somewhere right now, there is another boy around my age that's going through the same thing. The other thing I would tell myself is, um, there's a lot of people in the world, and at every moment that I'm asleep, someone is awake. Somehow that comforted me. So that somebody was aware that somebody was um, awake and alert. And I think the truth for you and me tonight, if you're going through affliction, if you do go through affliction, is that you and I share in the company of the saints and sinners throughout history that themselves have gone through affliction and trial and sadness. Now, that doesn't make it any easier. But it is true that if now or in the future you are going through it, whew, um, you're not alone. You're in good company. But there's actually an even better comfort, and that's the second kind of truth for our hearts tonight. And that's that the reminder from this psalm for our hearts is that God, our God, is good. That he knows, and that he actually is able and eager to deliver us. So the overarching tone of this psalm is actually one of joy and excitement and praise. David is doing this because he knows that the God he serves is actually fully capable of doing it. In fact, that's God's MO. Deliverance is God's way of being. It's his delight. I mean, maybe that's something you need to be reminded of tonight when whatever you're going through, that God's disposition towards you is that he's sitting on the edge of his seat waiting to bring you deliverance. He longs for it. He delights in it. I think it can be easy for us to go through the afflictions of life and become resigned, to become, kind of lose heart, kind of not know 
if we're going to make it. But I think what the saints throughout time have known, what David knows here, is that, yes, affliction is real. Sadness is real. The things of the life that weigh us down are real. But at the same time, the saints have known that God's nature towards us is goodness and mercy. And he delights to bring his people salvations. See, we can know as Christians, um, because we are people who belong to Christ, and we can, we can witness to the many deliverances and the, the great deliverance he's done for each of us. See, David is making us alert and attended to what God is fully capable of doing in your life tonight. David actually is telling us that you and I can taste and see God's goodness in his deliverance right now. Currently, presently, even in the midst of affliction. And you might be saying, I want to taste and see that now. I need to taste and see that now. I'm desperate to taste and see that now. How can I taste it? How can I see it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Which is why, alongside kind of the three moves in the passage, alongside the two truths for our hearts, there's one announcement that we need to hear over and over and over again. And that's that the good news is that our God has secured your deliverance in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our God has secured your deliverance in the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, it's a profound and comforting truth of the gospel in the person that God, in the person of his son, in human flesh and bone, has experienced kind of the deepest affliction and suffering imaginable. And so Jesus can actually, God in the flesh can actually look at you and say, I know, I know, I know. It's, a, it's an amazing truth of the gospel that through the afflictions of the righteous one, that God has actually secured the salvation of the world. It's an awesome truth of the gospel that Christ's bones were not broken on the cross. They were kept. And that through the afflictions of God's servant, he has secured the salvation of the world. And it's a deep comfort to know that just as God preserved and kept the bones of his son, so he will preserve and keep yours. So he will preserve and keep mine. Paul in Colossians tells us that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this is the announcement that we need to hear every week. That actually in this table, you can taste and see that God is good. You can taste and see God's deliverance now. It's at this table that we're actually given the grace to remind us that God has indeed secured our salvation. This is the goodness of God on display for you. You can feed on Christ, being sustained by him, even in your darkest times of affliction, knowing that just as God kept Christ, so he will keep you. Which means that you're able to persevere and continue because of the mercy and the grace of Christ. And it also means that there's going to come a day, Jesus told us there's going to come a day uh, when we will actually feast with him and taste his goodness and his kingdom with him. There's going to come a time when the afflictions of this life will be no more. And all it will be is feasting 
and joy. And as we enter that eternal dwelling place, I can just imagine us hearing these words. We will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on our mouth. Glorify God with us and let us exalt his name forever. Let's pray.